Muscular septal defects. That's a membranous type. This has been taken from an, uh, a stillborn baby. This is from necropsy. Muscular type, membranous type. What did you say was the embryological origin of this part of the cavity? Primordial ventricle. So VSDs in the adults result in shunting of blood from the left side to the right side. Right? So you're shunting oxygenated blood to the right side. Do you think that will produce um, cyanosis in a baby? What do you think? You're taking blood in an adult, not a baby, in an adult or a young person. You're taking blood from the left side, which has high pressure, so the blood will flow preferentially from left side to right side. Do you think that will produce a blue baby, a baby that is deprived of oxygen? No. Okay. Keep that in mind because shunting is also one of your objectives. So, let's start off with a question. Okay, time is up. Everybody clicked? All right. So what do we think? Ooh. So are we talking about a membranous type VSD or a muscular type VSD? Muscular. It's at the bottom, right? So what is the embryological origin of most of the muscle of the ventricle? primordial ventricular wall. The other part of the interventricular septum is your membranous part. What is the embryological origin of the membranous part of the interventricular septum? Is that combo one, that complicated one? But the word that you have to talk about is your endocardial cushions, and then you have your bulbar ridges that grow down, right? And the bulbar ridges, they come from neural crest cells. So it's a combination of neural crest cells and endocardial cushions. Oh, the right answer is primordial ventricle, D. I don't know. 23%. I know we always say neural crest cells is the default answer, but sometimes they're not. So the valves flow, the atrioventricular valves, they're the tricuspid and mitral valves. We spoke about them already. But the embryology is due to um, apoptosis or programmed cell death of the remnants of the endocardial cushion. All right, and that forms the cusps and some of the chordae tendine. We spoke about all the, the, the structures already, so we don't need to go it over again. 
The semilunar valves, however, are from neural crests. So these are the semilunar valves here. You have your aortic and pulmonary valves. Here we have the aortic valve. Very important. There are three cusps, and they look like half moons. And you have two cusps that have coronary vessels, and you have a non-coronary cusps. The ones with the coronary vessels are the opening for the right and left coronary arteries. So in hemodynamics, it means that when your aortic valves are open and blood is going out of the heart, your coronary circulation is not receiving any flow. You probably would have spoken about that in physiology already, all right? Valves closed, orifices um, obstructed, no blood flow to the coronary circulation. So this is what the valves of the heart look like during the different phases of contraction. This is more for your, to add to your physiology. Your, in systole, you have blood flowing out into the systemic and pulmonary circulation, so your tricuspid and mitral valves are closed, and your aorticopulmonary valves are open to allow flow, blood in, flow of blood through the outflow tract into the two big arteries for the systemic and pulmonary circulation. In diastole, the opposite occurs closing of your aortic pulmonary valves and opening up of your ventricular, atrioventricular valves to fill them as your diastole. So that is the point when you will most likely have filling of your coronary vessels during diastole. Make sense? So these valves are located at particular locations. Um, the location of the valves are listed here. Your tricuspid is usually by the fourth or fifth. I mean, the, in, the, in, the, in your manual, we probably ask you to auscultate at the fifth intercostal space right behind the sternum. Um, your mitral is at, behind the sternum at your fourth, just a little bit above. Um, pulmonary and aortic are located at the third intercostal space. One is on the costal cartilage, that's your pulmonary, and the aortic is just a little bit away, just a little, bit, um, this, um, a little bit away from the sternum. So that's the location of the valves. But the, the point you auscultate them at does not usually correspond to the location. You tend to hear the sound of the auscultate of the valve, of a valve injury, you tend to hear that sound in cavity that the blood that passes through them is going to go into. So your aortic um, valve, if there's a problem with it, you tend to hear it distal to the, um, to the aorta, somewhere going up by the ascending aorta or so. In other words, somewhere higher than the third, um, than the fourth or fifth or third intercostal spaces. What we want you to focus on is the difference between the location of the valves and the actual point of auscultation. As physicians, you need to know where to auscultate them. As anatomists, you need to know where they are. So, when we ask you to auscultate, make sure you read the question properly if we say auscultate or if we say locate, right? The aortic and pulmonary valves are located in the second intercostal space, which you can find very easily by looking for your sternal angle and going down below them. Um, the aortic is on the right side next to the sternum and the pulmonary is on the left side. Your tricuspid valve is located in your fifth intercostal space, right next to the sternal margin. And your mitral valve, that's um, close to the apex, is located in your fifth intercostal space, in the midclavicular line. That's where you're going to auscultate for it. It makes sense, right? This, is, this corresponds to the apex where your left ventricle is, and the mitral valve allows flow into the 
left ventricle. This is physiology. You're going to talk about that in physio with Dr. Murray or somebody soon. So the valvular damage that could occur is the stenosis for our purposes or regurgitation or reflux. And based on if it's stenosis or regurgitation, you're going to hear the murmur that's produced from the turbulent flow through these valves at different points in the heart cycle. That you have to do in physiology. But note that you, for the stenosis, you're going to hear, the, for, for example, for aortic, this patient here, she has aortic stenosis. So where do you think you're going to auscultate her murmur? So this patient has rheumatic fever, and it's very common in rheumatic fever to be left with aortic stenosis, some mitral calcification, some tricuspid calcifications, and so on. So we're asking, where is the valve best heard? Okay, let's see how you did. Hmm. Hmm. No, that's no, that's not. It's th this is the, the arrow is wrong. So, what do you think the answer is? E. <laughs> no, no, no. The question I had before was mitral for the other group, and I forgot to change the arrow. But it's e, right parasternal at the second intercostal space on the right side. Right? Pulmonary is on the left side. Good job, guys. So which will, what will be at fifth intercostal space in the midclavicular line? Huh? Mitral valve. Very good. Behind the mitral valve auscultation. Now, behind the sternum at the left third intercostal space, what, is that, what does that correspond to? The location of the aortic valve, not the point of auscultation. Yes? Aortic. Yeah, we have to tell you. Physiology wouldn't tell you, but anatomy will tell you. Now, I mean, physiology will want you to determine what it is based on where this murmur is heard and so on. All right. So the heart is supplied by coronary vessels. We spoke a little bit about them already, but let's just talk uh, just a five minutes about what they, what they are and identify them. They come off on either side of your, in each of the coronary cusps of your aortic valves. In the, they're the first branches of the aorta. They're the only branches of your ascending aorta for our purposes. Now, the right coronary artery, as well as the left coronary artery, I say they're pointed to by the auricles. They're hogged by the auricles. If you lift up each of the auricles, you're going to see a coronary artery more or less beneath it. The right coronary artery has a longer course. It's a longer vessel. It's found in the coronary sulcus on the right side, and it has different. Um, it has several branches. The most important branch for our purposes would be your sinoatrial nodal branch, 
that comes off almost immediately after the artery forms and goes into your right atrium and supplies the SA node and part of the AV node. That's part of your conducting system, right? Your left coronary artery is a short artery as almost immediately from forming, it gives rise to two of its branches, of its major branches. One that goes through the anterior interventricular sulcus, it's called the anterior interventricular artery. Clinicians call it the left anterior descending artery or LAD. Then it continues as your circumflex artery. So this is, the, this is the territory of the coronary arteries. We have a table for you, just in case those of you who like tables, you can look at that, right? Now notice you have, um, it gives soft branches. The SA nodal does your SA node and your AV node conducting system. Um, there's a right marginal that runs along the right margin, and that supplies most of the right ventricle. Then you have your atrioventricular, you have your um, posterior ventricular branches, not that clinically important, and we don't really see them when we go to um, posterior, the, the sept, I'm sorry, septal branches that are not that important, and we don't really see them in the lab, but they help supply the septum. Now, the posterior, there's another important branch here, the posterior interventricular artery. This artery, we have it listed as a branch of the right coronary artery. However, it can also be a branch of your left coronary artery, and that is determined by whether the person has right or left coronary dominance. The term coronary dominance means, basically, for our purposes, where the posterior interventricular artery comes from, or which coronary artery supplies the posterior interventricular artery zone. That posterior interventricular artery supplies the posterior part of the interventricular septum. If it comes from the right coronary, the person is right dominant. And most persons, more than 60%, are right dominant. If it comes from your left coronary, then the person is left dominant. So in our, exams question, in our exam questions, when talking about coronary arteries, we'll mention the term right and left coronary dominance, and that will tell you where the posterior part of the interventricular septum and subsequently the posterior interventricular artery is coming from. The left coronary has a circumflex, has an anterior interventricular artery that goes through anterior interventricular sulcus and other branches. It supplies mostly the left atrium, left ventricle, and most of the interventricular septum, the anterior two-thirds of the interventricular septum. So here we have the territory of the right coronary, and we see some of the branches. Here you have your AV nodal, your SA nodal, that supplies, also um, could contribute to the AV node. Now here you have our marginal, that runs again along the margin, right? And then posteriorly, this person is a right dominant, you see the right coronary continuing as your posterior interventricular artery. Okay? The left coronary, that's its territory here. You have your left anterior descending with some perforating branches. Then you have your circumflex that goes around, as we always say circumflex does. It goes around the left side of the heart. Now, the uh, left anterior descending or anterior interventricular artery gives off branches. One of the major branches will be a diagonal branch or several diagonal branches, and that goes and supplies um, the anterior part of your, right, of your left ventricle. So these are the diagonal branches here. So 
left LED and diagonal branch. The circumflex continues and could give off branches that go along the margin, so we call those left marginal. So this is us, the circumflex coming back here. It gives off uh, artery along the margin, left marginal. In this case, the person is right dominant, so we do not have the circumflex continuing and giving you a posterior descending artery. The veins of the heart are not many. There are only four of them that you're supposed to know. And the thing is that they accompany the arteries. So they're found associated with the major arteries. So, for example, you have the anterior interventricular artery, or LED, is always accompanied by the great cardiac vein. I call it the big artery because it supplies most of the interventricular septum, is accompanied by the big cardiac vein or great cardiac vein. All right? So you find one, you find the other. So if a doctor, a cardiothoracic surgeon, for example, wants to do coronary bypass and he wants to kind of isolate the vessel before attaching an internal thoracic or so on, he has to be careful not to damage the accompanying vein. And that is how we're going to ask you about it in the exams. In a similar fashion, in the posterior interventricular sulcus, your posterior interventricular artery, no matter where it comes from, is always accompanied by your middle cardiac vein. There's also a small cardiac vein, and the small cardiac vein accompanies your um, right coronary artery in the coronary sulcus. So great cardiac vein, middle cardiac vein, a small cardiac vein that drains part of your um, right atrium that accompanies your right coronary on its way to the back. And then you have um, some, we saw it before, anterior cardiac veins that drain directly into the right atrium. They do not need to join the coronary sinus. All of the other veins that we just mentioned, small, middle, and great cardiac, all drain into the coronary sinus, which eventually drains into the right atrium. Are we okay with the venous drainage? Those of us who like tables, I have a table afterwards for you to review in your time. So let's not click in. Let's just talk, discuss this one in the interest of time. So we have this surgeon. He's a SGU grad, so he's being cautious, and he's doing a bypass surgery, and he wants with... Um, he is looking to mobilize the anterior interventricular artery, so which vein is associated with this artery? Great cardiac vein. Okay, good job. So this is your summary of the veins. This is an artery question. Let's answer this one. Oops, sorry, that's me.
Are we done? Okay, let's see how we did. Okay. So, tricuspid papillary muscles. So, the tricuspid is in the, which cavity? Right ventricle. That's your right AV valve. So, most of the right ventricle as well as your right atrium is supplied by your right coronary. And if it's your right coronary, then what other structures is most likely affected here? The left atrium and left ventricle is not really that much supplied by the right coronary artery. The person is left dominant, therefore your posterior interventricular septum will be supplied by your left coronary artery. Make sense? So your answer is your conducting system. And your right coronary artery always supplies the conducting system. Well, at least most of the time, supplies the conducting system. Okay? Are we clear so far? No? So this is what you're going to see in the lab. The first thing you're going to see is your left anterior descending, or your anterior interventricular artery. You're going to see a peaking out coronary artery from under the auricle. And you're going to see a marginal branch going across. This here is your SA nodal branch heading towards your interatrial septum. Serous pericardium, parietal layer, visceral layer. Um, so these coronary arteries, when they become blocked, you have coronary artery disease that can lead to ischemia based on the level of blockage. And ischemia, if it's sufficient, if it's significant or if it's prolonged, can lead to the death of myocardial tissue. So before, now we do um, stents, but before we used to do a lot of bypasses. We still do them, but we used to do a lot of bypasses, a bypass graft, where you bypass a blocked portion of coronary vessel by using an adjacent vessel or some sort of graft taken from somewhere. There are two types of grafts, venous and arterial. The venous graft, we spoke about them last module, you use your great saphenous vein because it's superficial, it doesn't have much valves in long segments, and you could take it out without much problems because you have a deep circulation to go with. Um, similarly, the arterial grafts, your radial artery, because it's easily accessible, it's right under your brachioradialis, right? And you have the ulna that compensates for its loss. That's why you do your test, remember that? And the internal thoracic, because of its proximity, it's right there, you just take it out, flip it over, put it on the heart, and you're fine. So you'll discuss um, coronary artery bypass in more detail with um, someone else in the clinical lecture. Now, the ischemia damages not just the myocardial tissue, but also the modified myocardial tissue in the form of the conducting system. So the conducting system is made up of a series of nodal tissues, nodal cell clusters, and fibers that communicate between the nodes. And then in the ventricles, the conducting system mainly is made up of Purkinje-like type fibers, so they'll make up your bundle branches. So you have in your atrium on the superior wall, close to the, right on the top of the interatrial septum, is your SA node, and that's exactly where the artery is going to head to. That's your pacemaker, and it controls the beating of the heart. Um, you have your AV node at the bottom, at the base of the interatrial septum. They're both in the atrium. Between them, you have internodal fibers, 
from your AV node, you have a bundle of His, a common bundle of His, that's very close to the membranous part of the interventricular septum. So when you have VSDs, the nodal fibers tend to be disrupted when you try to repair them. So you have to be very careful to identify them and repair the VSD with care. From your common AV bundle, you have a right and left bundle branch. And we already said that your right bundle branch is found in the moderator band, and it brings the, the conduction to the margin of the heart, where you have your anterior papillary muscle. So it's usually seen going from the septum to the anterior papillary muscle in the cadaver lab. Any interruption or death of myocardial tissue and conducting tissue leads to what are called heart blocks, which will be objective of the physiology lecture, I think. So let's look at autonomics of the heart now. That's a review for you. So I reviewed autonomics is a review for you. You like autonomics by now, right? You've had it quite a few times. So the heart, um, the heartbeat, the, the frequency of the heartbeat and the force of contraction is increased by the sympathetics and decreased by the parasympathetics. The sympathetics for the heart and the thoracic organs comes from T1 to T4. It's the upper part of the sympathetic outflow tract. That's where you're going to have your preganglionic um, pre cell bodies. Now, the preganglionic cell bodies, they're going to leave and go through the chain, the sympathetic chain, and they are associated either with the T1 to T4 sympathetic chain ganglia, uh, or the cervical sympathetic chain ganglion. So you have T1 to T4 spinal cord levels, that's pre. Posts come from either T1 to T4 ganglion or from the cervical ganglia, so superior, middle, and inferior cervical ganglia. The parasympathetics come from the vagus nerve, everything up to the two-thirds of, of the transverse colon is vagus. Now the sympathetics, they and the parasympathetics, they form cardiac plexuses, and that's associated with the arch of the aorta. From the heart also, you have visceral afferents that take away fibers um, regarding stress, stretch, irritation, um, hypoxia, and so on. And those are also transmitted to the cardiac plexus, and then they follow either the sympathetics or the parasympathetics back. So what does the sympathetics do in the heart? Increase the heart rate, conduction velocity, and contractile force. And the parasympathetics is contra contrary. So let's look at them. You've seen this picture before, T1 to T4, preganglionics in the lateral horn, or the intermedial lateral cell columns, as you call them. And from there, they leave, and they go to the chain ganglion. They could either synapse, between T1 to T4 chain ganglia, or they can go up the chain and synapse at the superior, middle, or inferior cervical ganglia. The postganglionics are going to now leave and come back to the heart to form the cardiac plexus around the arch of the aorta. When they come back down, they form discrete nerves called cardiopulmonary nerves. So cardiopulmonary nerves are postganglionic sympathetic nerve fibers heading towards the cardiac plexus. And they would eventually end up in the SA node and AV node and do what they're supposed to do. For the parasympathetics, the vagus nerve, um, vagus from the brainstem all the way downwards to discrete ganglia that's supposed to be located close to the heart. 
not ambiguous, not very well defined. And from there, postganglionic fibers, short postganglionic fibers, are going to go to the same location to decrease heart rates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's your vagus. Now, visceral afferents travel back with sympathetics and parasympathetics um, for the vagus um, regarding stretch of the beginning part of the aorta regarding dilatation of the ventricles, those travel back with the vagus nerve. And with the sympathetics, you have irritation, hypoxia, and so on, traveling back. But the pain of a heart attack, for example, is not really a visceral pain, it's a somatic pain. And that you'll talk about with somebody else later on. But visceral afferents that travel with sympathetics they, are so they go back to the, the spinal cord level where the sympathetics come from. So where would you feel the pain of, like, say, I, it's very ischemia and so on? T1 to T4 region, right? Right here. Now, it just so happens that the T2 spinal nerve has an association with the brachial plexus, that intercostal brachial nerve. So it's possible for you to feel um, cardiac pain somewhere down the medial aspect of the arm, as most people will tell you. It's also possible to feel it along the margin of the jaw or in the supracurvicular region, depending on which part of the heart is affected. If you have your inferior surface being affected and there is irritation there, the phrenic nerve will cause that pain to be referred to the shoulder. So this is what we just spoke about. Let's look at one more question. Let's talk about this one. So she has cancer, and they're going to the upper thoracic vertebral column and sympathetic chain. What does the sympathetic do in the heart, basically, is that talking about? What, what does it do? What will be affected? Perception of ability to increase the heart rate, right? D? Okay. So... That is the gross anatomy of the heart. The last bit talks about the big congenital defects of the heart. And they're very common. They're very common and they're associated with lots of stuff. Dr. Rabin spoke to you about rubella being associated with, with um, patent ductus arteriosus. Chromosomal problems like Down syndrome and Turner syndrome cause coarctation of the aorta, ductus arteriosus, and ASDs. The George syndrome leads to neural is because of neural crest cell issues, and that leads to problem with endocardial cushions. Lots of things. There's also familial issues like um, stretchy, tall guy. What's it again? Marfan syndrome. Good. Alcohol. Alcohol abuse leads to cardiovascular problems. In, guys, maternal diabetes and so on. They lead to neural crest cell problems, right? Now, usually congenital heart defects are asymptomatic. Some of them are asymptomatic. They're tiny, like a propatent ductus arteriosus doesn't have a, um, any problems until the person ends up with a cardiomegaly because they're eating a lot or they're not healthy or so on, right? Um, if it's a, um, a genetic disorder, you'll have other defects that makes you want to look for a congenital heart defect. But if it's something significant, you may hear a murmur, a normal heartbeat when you go to your doctor or when baby is born. Some of them lead to failure to thrive or particular poor development of regions like the limbs and so on. A very common sign of heart defect would be cyanosis. And cyanosis usually indicates that blood is going from your left side of the heart 
oxygenated blood is going from, from the, the oxygenated blood is going from the right side of the heart into the left side of the heart. And that means that there's some anatomical thing that's happening, either a hole in the septum with a pressure issue or um, one of the shunts that's supposed to have disappeared did not disappear. But cyanosis is a very important sign that there's possibly a cardiac problem. So left to right shunts is because you have blood being shunt from, shunted from the pulmonary circulation into the systemic circulation. Now, so that means in, from the systemic circulation into the pulmonary circulation, sorry. That means that your right side of the heart is congested, has more volume, more pressure, and that leads to um, pulmonary pressure, increasing pulmonary pressure, pulmonary vascular pressure. That leads to edema, so the person will have shortness of breath and so on. Does not tend to lead to cyanosis unless the pulmonary component is really severe, unless the person has pulmonary failure and so on. So this is a very important, this is a very important right-to-left shunt. It's an ASD that has occurred in the lower part. It's a primum type ASD. There's a little bit of valvular component right here. So you have blood being shunted, that's normal here, blood being shunted from the lower part of the interatrial septum from the, right, from the left side into the right side, increasing right side pressure. This is left-right shunting in a VSD, also possible. The pressure is high on the, right, on the left side, so the blood is forced through the VSD into the right side, and that leads to pulmonary congestion. So this is probably one of the few um, left-right shunts that we're going to talk about. It's a patent ductus arteriosus. The ductus arteriosus is supposed to have disappeared usually after a couple of weeks, but close up immediately after birth. If there's something wrong with the baby, like he has other congenital heart defects, or he's born prematurely, or there's, um, the mother was taking um, antiprostaglandins like endometacine or, pain or severe painkillers and so on, that... Ductus arteriosus does not close up. It remains patent or persistent, a persistent ductus arteriosus, which shunts blood from the aorta into the pulmonary circulation. So left oxygenated blood into the pulmonary circulation, leading to pulmonary congestion. This is very common with rubella as well as Down syndrome. Other congenital heart defects have a common um, a common um, origin. They are associated with neural crest cells. And these are the ones that are very, very important for USMLE. They lead to, they're from faulty neural crest cell migration, so then your bulbar ridges and your truncal ridges don't develop properly, your endocardial cushions don't grow properly, and there are four very important ones. Your tetralogy of fallow, transposition of the great vessels, persistent truncus arteriosus, and aorticopulmonary septal defect. Should be defect. Right? Now, they cause, all of these that we just spoke about, cause right to left shunting. They cause movement of blood from the right side into the left side, leading to poor oxygenation of the systemic circulation, leading to cyanosis, some degree of cyanosis. Depending on the severity, it could either be immediate cyanosis after birth or cyanosis when the baby is crying or feeding or so on. All right? So there is decreased pulmonary blood flow. 
as well as decreased oxygenation in the pulmonary in the, in the blood that is um, passed on to the systemic circulation. And the primary cause is because you have something that's increasing the right-sided pressure, like maybe pulmonary, um, pulmonary stenosis or something like that. And there's an associated ASD or VSD that allows, that allows the blood to be shunted from your right side into your left side. So these are um, some of the other causes. We're not going to talk about these here. So let's look at the most important one or the biggest one, the coolest one, I think. Tetralogy I followed, it consists of four um, items. The primary cause of tetralogy is that during the formation of the aortic pulmonary septum from the truncal ridges, instead of separating the aorta and pulmonary into two equivalent or two equal vessels, you have a displacement of the septum. It's displaced anteriorly. So that anterior displacement results in a very small pulmonary artery and a large aorta. And remember, the, 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 that spiral septum induces the bulbar ridges to do their thing and form the membranous part of the interventricular septum. So it means that you're going to have a very large aorta, you're going to have a pulmonary artery that is very stenotic, which means that there is increase in resistance to the right, in resistance to the right side of the heart, right? And because the septum doesn't form properly, there's a ventricular septal defect, which allows blood to flow from your right side into your left side, thus producing a right-to-left shunt. Does that make sense? Remember, please remember this, that the primary problem is anterior septal, anterior displacement of your bulbar septum. Pulmonary stenosis leads to right ventricular hypertrophy, and because the aorta is huge, it's now sitting over the interventricular septum that has not formed. So it's called an overriding aorta that hangs around over the ventricular septal defect. And that further um, increases the, um, the right-to-left shunting. So this is tetralogy. Notice here, you have a stenotic pulmonary. You have a large aorta that overrides the ventricular septal defect and a thick wall of the right ventricle. Now, usually th these babies, they could be okay because sometimes they have a persistent ductus arteriosus to help balance off the... Um, the to help um, increase pulmonary, pulmonary flow, right? That usually is maintained, or the doctors try to maintain it. But they tend to have symptoms, including severe cyanosis, when they cry, or when they go to the bathroom, or when they are um, irritable, or when they, whatever, feed in, when they're agitated, and so on. The second one is transposition of the great vessels. It just means switching of the aorta and pulmonary trunk because you have defective spiral septation instead of spiraling like this. It spirals in the opposite direction. Normally, that would be very lethal because you have systemic circulation getting deoxygenated blood, but the body compensates by either having a persistent ductus arteriosus or a VSD or ASD in order to allow blood to flow where it's supposed to. And as well, it's faulty migration of neural crest cells. So no spiral septum is formed, or the spiral septum that's formed is defective. Not no spiral septum. The spiral septum that's formed is twisted in the wrong direction. Persistent truncus arteriosus is that the spiral septum does not 
form. So there is a common aortic or pulmonary trunk with no septum dividing it. So it means that you have aorta and pulmonary trunk, but they're sharing the blood flow from right and left ventricle. Usually it's only survivable if there is an associated VSD, and it's very common to have an associated VSD. Total anomalous pulmonary venous return, TAVVIR. This one is not very common, and it just simply means that you have the pulmonary veins draining at a point where they're not supposed to. So instead of draining into the left atrium, the pulmonary veins drains anywhere from superior vena cava, which is one of the most common sites, drains into the brachiocephalic vein, can drain into the coronary sinus, it drains into the portal or hepatic vein. That's not as common, right? So it means that your pulmonary vein with your oxygenated blood goes into the venous side of your circulation. It does not get into your ventricles to go into the aorta. And that is usually lethal. It's usually lethal unless there is an associated septal defect, usually an ASD. So this person will have immediate cyanosis. As soon as they're born and they take their first breath, they will have cyanosis. This one is not for you guys. That's for the other, the, other, the other group. So we've just spoken about all of our VSDs, ASDs, and all of the defects. You need to, homework for you guys will be derivatives of your veins. You need to be able to describe how the IVCs form, how your portal vein is formed, the fate of the vitellin umbilical, and what's the other vein? Cardinal veins, and what they contribute to. And you also should be able to distinguish between the different types of cyanotic birth defects. So tetralogy, you have to know it very well, like, like the back of your hand. Boards love it. But differentiate between the mechanisms behind the total anomalous pulmonary venous return, transposition, and persistent truncus arteriosus. Be able to describe patent ductus arteriosus, be able to describe the two types of VSDs present, and distinguish between the three types of ASDs that we've spoken about. If you can do that, then you're probably okay. Coronary arteries, make sure you know their territory. If you have an idea of the territory, then you're kind of fine. And make sure you know right to left dominance. You guys, you can't leave yet. Hold on a second. Hold on, hold on. You have to give me five more minutes. Yes, you want to give me five? Hold on. It's been recorded. So are you able to tell the territories of supply of the coronary arteries? That's fine. If you're able to distinguish the features of right and left atrium, that is important for your cadaver lab. You need to be able to locate the coronary sinus on the heart and the different, the, the big coronary vessels, LAD, PDA, circumflex, right and left marginal branches, and SA nodal arteries. Those are all the arteries on the outside of the heart. Not much, right? It's not like the last module. Be able to, your pulmonary veins and so on, you don't really see them in cadaver lab. For your imaging, be able to tell the left and right margins of the heart and the structures that contribute towards the left and right margins of the heart. And be able to talk about your pericardium and the different layers of it. And be able to describe or list the derivatives of your primordial heart tube. What comes from what? What does not develop? What does develop? And so on and so forth and so forth. And that's it. That's all the objectives. Any questions? I have open hours or office hours in my office. Please feel free to pop in. I am always there to help. Take care, guys. This is not for you guys. Sorry, yeah.